so today we're going to be going through uh, Matthew chapter 8, verses 1 through 17. And I think uh, when studying the Bible, we're, we're always trying to take the, the context into account, what, what, what was written in the Bible, what Matthew wrote was intended for a certain audience. And it's given a certain context in that book, and we're trying to take that context and bring it into today's world and apply it to our lives today. And that's a job that requires the help of the Holy Spirit. Um, on my part is the one that's speaking these words to you, and then on your part, uh, you need the Holy Spirit too to receive them because they're not going to be uh, the most amazing words you've ever heard, and they're not going to be perfect. So uh, the Holy Spirit is here with us, and he will help us all get through this. Uh, I don't preach very often, so I'm a little nervous. And so I'm going to pray before we really get into it. So let's pray together. Uh, Father, um, I'm just comforted this morning by the, the reality that you are God and that, that you have ordained this morning um, for us to gather, to worship you, to praise you for who you are, and Lord, to, to remember the gospel and to... Um, to study your word together and to look at how that word applies to our lives and how it should change us. And so, Lord, we know that your word is living and active. We know that it's sharper than any two-edged sword and that it can, um, as, as Brian prayed in our prayer in the back before we started, that it can cut away that, that flesh um, that gets in the way. So, Lord, we just pray that you do that this morning. I pray that... Um, that though I've prepared notes, though I've studied to be able to preach this sermon this morning, Lord, that you would guide it where you will. Um, I, I seek to, to be a messenger of, of you this morning. And so if I've got things written down that you don't want people to hear, uh, just change that. Uh, we just submit this time um, to you and your authority. And we just thank you, Jesus, for being with us um, today. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So go ahead and turn your Bibles to, to Matthew chapter 8. Um, it's a great encouragement for a preacher. I'm finding that, um, that you, when you can hear the pages of Bibles turning, um, silence is, is uh, interesting sometimes. So um, like, like Mark said, this, this point marks a sort of transition in the book of Matthew where, where Matthew has been... Uh, sharing the Sermon on the Mount with us. Uh, so Jesus' biggest block of teaching has just ended. So, so Jesus has been done preaching, teaching practical things, teaching how the gospel applies to us and changes us and our interactions with the world. And it, we're at this place where it shifts. The focus of the book of Matthew shifts to not just what Jesus taught, but what Jesus, Jesus did. And so Matthew uh, chapter 7 ends with this statement, it says, And when Jesus finished these sayings, that is the Sermon on the Mount, the crowds were astonished at his teaching, for he was teaching them as one who had authority and not as their scribes. And so what he's, what he's keying us into is, is Jesus was teaching with a different authority, and now that authority is going to be on display for us. It's something that's completely radical and different than anything that had ever happened before. And so these first three miracles that we're going to go through today, we're going to, we're going to go through the healing of the leper, 
We're going to go through the healing of the centurion's servant. We're going to go through the healing of Peter's mother-in-law. So there's three miracles. And in these three miracles, we do see something radical about who Jesus was. We see that he was not only radical in his power, he was radical in his rejection of the social and societal norms of that time. And he was radical in the pity that he had for the people whom he created. And so we'll see those things in these miracles. Um, but Jesus proves that he's more than a great teacher. He proves that, that he is the great I am, that he is Yahweh in the flesh, walking on the face of the earth. And he's not the teacher that just teaches with authority. He is the authority. And so that's what we're going to see as we go through this this morning. There's, we have to remember, too, that, that Matthew wrote this, this book. Um, the intended audience was Jewish people. And so it would be read and, and, and um, took in by Jewish people as the original audience. And these healing miracles that are recorded here are just shocking. They're just they're just shocking. They're really, if you were a Jewish person at that time, reading the, these accounts, you wouldn't believe what you're hearing because it's just so shocking and surprising. And we'll get into that. So let's start it together. Uh, Matthew 8, starting in verse 1. I'm just going to take each of these chunks individually. So we're just going to go through the first chunk together right now. So that's verses 1 through 4. When he came down from the mountain... Great crowds followed him, and behold, a leper came to him and knelt before him, saying, Lord, if you will, you can make me clean. And Jesus stretched out his hand and touched him, saying, I will be clean. And immediately, immediately, his leprosy was cleansed. And Jesus said to him, See that you say nothing to anyone, but go, show yourself to the priest, and offer the gift that Moses commanded for a proof to them. So it is important to, to just know what it says in verse 1, that there are great crowds that have followed Jesus down from the mountain. And, and so this, these miracles weren't something that happened in isolation or in secret. Uh, there, are just, there are tons of people there. I think um, one of the versions in Mark or Luke talks about, um, it, or maybe it's a different translation, uses the word multitudes that... Um, that there are multitudes of people following. Not just one multitude, which would be a lot of people, but it's several multitudes. And so we know that the, the crowd was very large. And that's, again, important because they were all Jewish people. So those people were also shocked by what they're seeing and hearing from Jesus as he says and does these things. And then we see in verse 2 um, that the, the leper comes down from the mountain, or I mean, comes up, comes up to Jesus and he kneels before him, and one, one account uh, makes, it, makes it sound more like he actually like, put his face on the ground, just totally prostrate before Jesus, begging him to make him clean, to take care of this, this case of leprosy. And in order for us to really understand what it was like for this man, the leper, at this point in time, we need to go back a little bit, and we need to talk about what leprosy was, and, and, and what the Old Testament had to say about how leprosy was to be dealt with. And um, so there's, there's different aspects of that. There's a physical side of it, just the disease itself. And then there's the, the social uh, aspects of that and, and the societal aspects of that. And we'll get into both of those. But let's start with the physical 
the actual disease itself. I, I took a, um, a chunk of writing out of a commentary because I thought this description of leprosy was, was exactly what I needed to really get my mind around what it would have been like to be this person. And so I'm just going to read it. It's a, a big chunk of text, but just stick with me. Leprosy generally begins with pain. Numbness follows, and soon the skin is in, in, in the spots that are numb, lose its original color. It gets to be thick, glossy, and scaly. In fact, the affliction is called leprosy because it makes the skin scaly, from the Greek word leper or lepis, which means scale. It's actually the same word that is used in Acts 9 when, when Paul is converted, and it says that the scales fell from his eyes. That's the same Greek word there um, that means leprosy. Um, so as the sickness progresses, the thickened spots become dirty sores and ulcers due to poor blood supply. The skin, especially around the eyes and ears, begins to bunch with deep furrows between the swellings so that the face of the afflicted individual begins to resemble that of a lion. So they've got these, these folds kind of developing on their face that makes them look like a Klingon or something. Just really terrible stuff. Fingers drop off or, or are absorbed altogether. Toes are affected similarly. Eyebrows, eyelashes drop out. By this time, one can obviously see that the person in this pitiable condition is a leper. It's obvious. By a touch of the finger, one can also feel it. One can even smell it, for the leper emits a very unpleasant odor. Moreover, in the view of the fact that the disease-producing agent frequently also attacks the larynx, the voice box, the leper's voice acquires a grating quality. His throat becomes hoarse, and you can now not only feel, see, and smell the leper, but you can hear his rasping voice. And if you stay with him for some time, you even imagine a peculiar taste in your mouth, probably due to the odor. So the smell is so pervasive and so strong that you can taste it. And then the commentator says, all the senses of the well person are engaged in the detection of the leper. And so imagine being a leper and having that horrible physical condition when you know that people that are around you can, with all their senses, just taste and smell and see this awful uh, case before them and just how terrible that would, that would feel. But it wasn't just the physical effects of the disease that were so terrible. It was what that did for the rest of that person's life. And if you want to flip with me back to um, the book of Leviticus, so it's in the very beginning, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus. Um, we'll look at chapter 13, verse 6. Chapter 13, verse 6. Or actually, verse 9, sorry. Verse 9 says, When a man is afflicted with a leprous disease, he shall be brought to the priest, and the priest shall look. And if there is a white swelling in the skin that has turned the hair white, and there is raw flesh in the swelling, it is a chronic leprous disease in the skin of his body, and the priest shall pronounce him unclean. He shall shut him up, for he is unclean. He shall not shut him up, for he is unclean. So when he's saying he shall not shut him up, there is actually a process of, of testing whether or not somebody who is maybe a leper, 
was really a leper by shutting them up in isolation for seven days. And so what, it, what, what is being said here is you don't even need to do that step. You just go straight to they're unclean. And so um, there's actually Leviticus 13 and 14, if you ever want an interesting read, it um, is a very, um, it's a lengthy discussion of leprosy, but it's really interesting to see um, just the depth to which that is described in the Bible um, and, and just the, the horrible nature of that sickness and how serious it was. Um, so then if you skip ahead in, the, in Leviticus 13 to, chapter, or to verse 45, it, it talks about what then, once a person was announced as unclean, announced as a leper, announced as somebody that would... would um, would officially have that mark upon them, what, what the results of that would be socially. It says, uh, starting in verse 45, the leprous person who has the disease shall wear torn clothes and let the hair of his head hang loose and he shall cover his upper lip and cry out, unclean, unclean. And imagine that in a raspy voice. He shall remain unclean as long as he has the disease. He is unclean. He shall live alone. His dwelling shall be outside the camp. And so we see here that this disease of leprosy was not just being sick. It was, and it wasn't just your body absorbing parts of you. It was your identity that was absorbed and taken by this disease. Because the person's very identity was, was, you are now unclean. You are alone. You will live alone. You will live outside the camp. And that is what this man was experiencing, just utter and total isolation and pain. And so it's important to remember as we're looking at Matthew 8 that that this man was unclean according to the Scriptures. It was God's law at that time that he be unclean. And because he was unclean, I think that the the Jewish, Jewish law was, you know, expanded greatly over the, over the generations. To, there are specific things. I, I can't remember numbers, but I think you, uh, a leper wasn't supposed to come within six feet of, of a person that wasn't leprous. And then if the wind was blowing, it was actually like 100 feet or 150 feet or something like that. And so this person had to stay away. And as they were approaching somebody, inadvertently, they'd have to shout out, they're unclean. And then what would people do when they heard that? They'd just run away because they didn't want to get sick. And so, in Matthew 8, that, that was the world that they were living in, and, and for this person to even approach Jesus was just totally shocking, totally unacceptable according to the, the law, unacceptable according to the social norms of the day. For, for, the, for Jesus to be approached was just unthinkable. That's not something that happened. And so... That would be something that would be really shocking for them. But what would be even more shocking was what happens next. But are you kind of getting the sense of what it was like to be this leper? I think it's really easy with these familiar stories to just kind of gloss over those deep truths of, man, this was a pitiable condition, really terrible. And this man was in great pain and isolation. But what happened next is even more shocking. And so we see... Um, in verse 3, what Jesus does. Verse 3 says, And Jesus stretched out his hand and touched him, saying, I will 
be clean. So the leper who says, Lord, if you're willing, you can cleanse me. Jesus says, I am willing, and I will. And Jesus touched him. And for a, a person to, to touch a leper was just, again, it's not something that was normal. It was not something that somebody was supposed to do. And so for Jesus to, to touch him like that, touch him with the, the hand that would someday be nailed to the cross, was, was just, again, just totally unbelievable and stunning. And so this, this is a real strong picture of, of the gospel, I think, today. Because we all are, are like this leper. We all are totally sinful and depraved in our hearts. We have leprous hearts, right? And, and some of you might even be here today and you have not yet uh, come to Jesus and you have not um, let him heal you of that leprous heart. Um, and so this morning, um, just be encouraged because actually, I think it's in Mark chapter 1, it says that Jesus had pity on this man. And, and know that, 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 is, that Jesus that had pity on that man today is the same Jesus that is alive today. And he has pity on us. He knows our plight. He knows that even though you, you might be here this morning and feeling like you are totally dirty, filthy, unworthy, that you maybe even didn't want to come to this church service because you felt like you weren't worthy of, of being in the presence of God. Know that God loves you and he has pity on you and he can heal you of that leprosy and that healing is something that happens immediately. That healing is instant, just like it was in this story here. And so come to him this morning. His cleansing touch is so close. He's, he's within an arm's reach. If you would just come to him, kneel before him, confess your need, he is faithful and he will heal you like he promises. So we move on to verse 4. And Jesus says something that is a little strange, I think. In verse 4 it says, And Jesus said to him, to the leper, See that you say nothing to anyone, but go, show yourself to the priest and offer the gift that Moses commanded for a proof to them. And so there's, there's a couple of pieces here. There's a uh, Leviticus 14 talks about how a leper who was no longer a leper was made clean, and there's a, a, a sacrifice that's required. But uh, the thing that's perplexing, at least for me at first, was just that Jesus told him, See that you say nothing to anyone, but go. He's telling him, don't talk to other people. Just go straight to the priest. And you see that consistent, that, taught, that said consistently in the three different accounts of this miracle. So why did Jesus say that was what I was wondering. You'd think that, um, that this leper would be really excited about being healed and he would naturally want to go talk to his friends and family and tell them what had happened and celebrate and rejoice. But Jesus says, no, go straight to the priest and get it dealt with. Uh, be made clean ceremonially. Uh, we actually know from, I think it's the account in Mark, that's, uh, that he actually didn't listen to Jesus. He actually did go talk to some people about it and share what had happened. Um, but anyway, why would Jesus tell him to not, um, not talk to others? I think one popular thought is that 
that um, Jesus was trying to prevent um, the crowds from really kind of figuring out what was going on and, and how much power he really had and that it was all part of this, this plot to try to, uh, to conceal who he was before the right time. Uh, but I don't really think that that's true because like we said before, this miracle actually happened in front of a great crowd of people who were no doubt talking about what had happened because it was so shocking and surprising. It was not something that they would have ever seen before. And so we, I don't think that, that that's the case. I think what the, the point of it that, that Jesus was trying to get at was, was this. I think that he gave this man that instruction for his own benefit. I think that the reason that Jesus told him that was because he, he thought that, um, that in healing him, if, if word of that healing was to reach the priests before, um, before the man was able to travel to Jerusalem and become healed or become cleansed ceremonially by the, by the priest and pronounced as clean, if, if the word got to the priest before he could do that, the priest the Jewish priests who very likely were starting to not really care much about this Jesus fellow would maybe deny him of that privilege of being able to be announced as clean again. And, and in order to, to sort of uh, prevent the fame of Jesus from being spread, maybe they, maybe, um, they would have said no to that and, and not allowed him to re-enter society as someone who is now clean. So that's just my, my idea. There's, it's hard to know for sure um, why that would have been, but to me that makes a lot of sense that Jesus would, would be doing that for this man's benefit and not just to hide some, some secret plan that he has because um, Jesus is bigger than that, I think. So, I guess that's the leper. Let's move on. Move on to verse 5, the faith of the centurion. So we, so we pick it up in verse 5. It says, When he entered Capernaum, a centurion came forward to him, appealing to him, Lord, my servant is lying paralyzed at home, suffering terribly. And he said to him, I will come and heal him. But the centurion replied, Lord, I am not worthy to have you come under my roof, but only say the word and my servant will be healed. For I too am a man under authority with soldiers under me, and I say to one, go, and he goes, and to another, come, and he comes, and to my servant, do this, and he does it. And when Jesus heard this, he marveled and said to those who followed him, truly, I tell you, with no one in Israel have I found such faith. I tell you, many will come from the east and west and recline at the table with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob in the kingdom of heaven while the sons of the kingdom will be thrown into outer darkness. In that place, there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. And to the centurion, Jesus said, Go, let it be done for you as you have believed. And the servant was healed at that very moment. So there's a number of things in this section of Scripture that, that we could look at. We only have so much time this morning. This these 17 verses are, are just full of stuff that we could talk about. Um, I, was, I had a hard time fitting it all into like 45 or 50 minutes. Um, so we're only going to hit on some of these topics um, in depth, but uh, we'll do our best to get through it. So let's start with the fact that Jesus marveled. Does that surprise you at all? I mean, 
Jesus, the, the same God who, who spoke the world into existence, who, who created everybody, who knows our hearts, who knows all that's going on, um, how is it that this centurion's faith could, could marvel Jesus, could cause him to marvel? You might, instead of using the word marvel, you might say that Jesus was astonished or Jesus was amazed. And I think for us, most of the time when we're amazed or marveled, there's an, there's an element of surprise. And so it just seems really interesting that Jesus would have marveled at this man's faith. Um, I think it, you know, Jesus knows all things. He wasn't really surprised, but he was, um, he was expressing a, a great appreciation for what was going on. And, and we'll get into that. Um, I think what... I think what, in order to understand why Jesus would marvel, you really have to look at what was it about this man's faith that was different? Because Jesus clearly says that this man's faith was different, different than anybody else in Israel. And again, this is something that, that like the case of the leper, this had to have been pretty shocking for the Jewish people that were there and the Jewish people that, that 50 years later read this book that Matthew had written. Because... You know, the, the Jews were the, the people of God, the, the people who had the, um, been promised a lot through God that, that through their offspring the world would be blessed, that, um, that they were God's chosen race. And, and, and so it had to have been kind of surprising for Jesus to say, um, nowhere in Israel, the place of my people, have I seen such great faith. And I think that, that perhaps the thing that, that was so different about the centurion's faith was that he knew his unworthiness to receive anything, but yet he asked. And so the centurion uh, was a Roman citizen. He was a Gentile ethnically, was not Jewish. And so according to, to Jewish customs and Jewish law, he, he was not something that deserved any benefit of being part of, of that society. Um, but yet Jesus proclaims that his faith was more than anybody else's that was supposedly in that, that community of, of the true people of God. And, um, and so it's very likely that, that this man did absolutely nothing to satisfy the law. So you had, uh, in that time, the Jews had all sorts of sacrifices and rituals that they were supposed to to do to, to, um, to be right with God, so to speak. Um, this man wouldn't have done any of those things. He would be totally um, undeserving of anything that was supposed to come from the, uh, as a result of those. But Jesus said that things are now different. So he's saying something completely radical. This is a big shift in how things worked. Jesus is saying um, this is not just about this ethnic group of people that we call Israel. It's now applying to the whole world. Jesus says as far or that people will come from the east and from the west. And so, uh, yeah, I tell you, many, in verse 11, many will come from east and west and recline at the table with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob in the kingdom of heaven. So he's saying that salvation being part of my family, being adopted into my family as God, um, or into God's family as my children, 
um, is now something that extends to the whole world. That, that opportunity is now there for everybody. Then he says something else that's, that's equally surprising and shocking to those people. He says, while the sons of the kingdom will be thrown into the outer darkness, and in that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. So he's not just saying that these outsiders, these Gentiles, these dogs, as the Jewish people saw the Gentiles, not just that they will be included, but that there will be uh, people of God's race, his, his nation, that are going to be excluded from that kingdom of heaven. Paul talks about this a little bit in Romans chapter 9. So if you want, you can flip with me there. Starting in verse 30. Paul says, What shall we say then, that Gentiles who did not pursue righteousness have attained it? That is, a righteousness that is by faith, but that Israel who pursued a law that would lead to righteousness did not succeed in reaching that law. Why? Because they did not pursue it by faith, as if it were based on works. They have stumbled over the stumbling stone, as it is written, Behold, I am laying in Zion a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense, and whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. And so Jesus is saying the same thing that Paul is, that it's no longer about these works of righteousness, about this system of laws and regulations and fasts and feasts and work. It's now about Jesus. It's, a, it's about faith. And so that's what Jesus is saying about the centurion. The centurion understands that, like his, uh, Paul says in Colossians 1, that, that Jesus holds all things together by the power of his word. That, that he need not even be in the presence of his servant to heal him. He can do it with a word because that is how powerful Jesus is. And so remember that these words were unthinkable for the Jew. For thousands of years, they thought the promise was something that applied to them and them alone. But Jesus makes it clear that that's not true. His kingdom will be ethnically and socially diverse. It's just radical stuff happening here. There is another aspect. I wasn't sure if I was going to share this or not. Another aspect of the centurion's faith um, that is interesting, and that is um, if you compare it with the faith of the leper, what did the leper say when he came to Jesus? He says, Lord, if you will. Like, if you will, I know you can do this, but if you will, it's almost like he's, he's um, trying to give Jesus that out in case... You know, he didn't want to claim it if, if he thought that, that Jesus was maybe going to say no. He kind of leaves that door open. Uh, but the centurion doesn't really seem to do that. He just kind of claims, like, my servant is sick at home. Heal him, please. And uh, there's something interesting about that faith. And I think um, that in today's church, perhaps sometimes there is some wrong thinking on this sort of thing, especially with regards to physical healing because we live in a world where there is sickness, there is suffering, there is disease, there are things that we are dealing with that are hard. And, and we think of verses like in James chapter 5 
Starting in verse 13, it says, Is anyone among you suffering? Let him pray. Is anyone cheerful? Let him sing. Praise. Is any among you sick? Let him call for the elders of the church and let them pray over him, anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord. And the prayer of the faith will save the one who is sick, and the Lord will raise him up. And if he has committed sins, he will be forgiven. And then also, before I explain what I'm getting at, let's read Psalm 37, chapter 4. Probably a pretty popular memory verse. Psalm 37, chapter 4, if anybody knows it, delight in the Lord, and he will give you the desires of your heart. Delight in the Lord, and he will give you the desires of your heart. So you have people that, and I've been there in my own life, praying for certain things to happen, praying for healing of God. I do not want to be dealing with this right now. This hurts. This is painful. Please change it. And then you read this verse that says, Delight yourself in the Lord, and he will give you the desires of your heart. And what do you do when that desire, that thing that you want so badly, does not come about? Well, while I think it's right and good to, to really believe and have that faith that God is powerful enough to heal your sickness, to take away your pain, to, to take your suffering away, it is a misapplication and a misunderstanding of God's word to to expect and demand that that would happen. Because if you look at Psalm 37 again, um, it continues in verse 5. It says, Commit your way to the Lord and trust in Him, and He will act. And so there's this sense in which um, you think, wow, if I'm, if I'm delighting in the Lord, maybe your desires will change. Maybe the foundational desire of what you're looking for is different. Now that you delight in the Lord. Not only that, it says commit your way to the Lord. So you're not, you're not looking at, I want to go here, God, so take me here. You're saying, God, you take me where you will. And there's this attitude of faith and trust and dependence on him that I think glorifies him and honors him. And that is what these verses are talking about. And then it, back to James 5. Yes, it does say if you are sick, have the elders of the church pray for you. And that is something that absolutely do that. If you are at a place where you don't know how to, how to deal with something, or if, even if you're just really struggling with a sickness that won't go away, or you desire that healing, come to the elders and ask us to pray for you. Because God's word commands it. And we do know that healing does come at times from a result of that but that that is not something that we should um, base our hopes on. Because, like it says in James 5, it doesn't promise that you will be made well. It says that the prayer of faith will save the one who is sick, and the Lord will raise him up. And if he has committed sins, he will be forgiven. That's talking about salvation. It's talking about the ultimate reality that all of us are going to die someday. And that the prayer of faith will save you, even if it doesn't result in your sickness going away, you'll be saved. And so certainly, like I said, um, don't hesitate to, to pray about it yourself or to come to your elders and have us pray for you. That's important. But we must move on. Um, 
Go back to Matthew chapter 8, and we're going to pick it back up in verse 14. Verse 14, And when Jesus entered Peter's house, he saw his mother-in-law lying sick with a fever. He touched her hand, and the fever left her, and she rose and began to serve him. That evening they brought to him many who were opposed by demon, or oppressed by demons, and he cast out the spirits. And with a word, he healed all who were sick. This was to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet Isaiah when he said, He took our illnesses and bore our diseases. So we see the same account given in two other places. I'm just going to read them real quick because they're, they're short. We look in Mark chapter 1, verse 29. It says, And immediately he left the synagogue and entered the house of Simon and Andrew. Simon is the same person as Peter with James and John. And now Simon's mother-in-law lay ill with a fever, and immediately they told him about her. And he came and took her by the hand and lifted her up, and the fever left her, and she began to serve them. And then we read it in Luke chapter 4, verse 38. And he arose and left the synagogue and entered Simon's house. And now Simon's mother-in-law was ill with a high fever, and they appealed to him on her behalf, and he stood over her and rebuked the fever, and it left her. And immediately she rose and began to serve him. So the thing that I was really wondering about when I was, was studying this passage was, why? Why is this a miracle that is recorded, not in just one of the synoptic gospels, but all three? Why is this so important um, that it's, in all three of those, because it seems at first blush that it's sort of ordinary. She had a fever. And I guess in Luke's account, Luke is the doctor, so he'd know best. It was a high fever, so maybe it was serious. But it doesn't, uh, I don't get the impression in reading it that it was, that it was necessarily life-threatening. It wasn't a grave sickness, although it's possible it could have been. And so it left me wondering, why would this account be in all three of those Gospels. Because I was thinking about even the ending of the book of John. Does anybody remember how that ends in chapter 21? It says, Now there are also many other things that Jesus did. Were every one of them to be written, I suppose that the world itself could not contain the books that would be written. And so Jesus did so many great things while he was here on earth. It's not like there was not much to choose from and they, they just didn't have much material to work with. There was an abundance of material. And so we know for sure that any, anything that's given to us about the work that Jesus did when he was on the earth is important. And so we have to find the reason why. And I think the reason why, maybe it's obvious. Um, I think the reason why is just in the response of what Peter's mother-in-law did. Because this response is shared the same way in all three of those accounts. What does it say? It says, mother uh, Peter's mother-in-law did what when she was healed? She rose immediately and began to serve. She began to serve. And so, I think the point for us here is maybe fairly simple. Just that for those of us that have been saved, we have been um, accepted, healed, changed, delivered, redeemed, adopted by God, that that is not the end for us. We have been saved for a reason. If you are breathing today, you are breathing because Jesus has given you that breath. You are here for a reason. 
you're here to serve God in some way. And so it's, it's the duty of the Christian to really come to terms with, why am I here? What, what is the way in which I should be serving God? And it doesn't necessarily mean that you're volunteering at this church or doing something specific like that. Maybe it does, but you should be doing something. And that's not in order to, to earn acceptance. It's not in order to uh, please anybody. It's the response that comes from a heart that has been transformed. And so we see that in Peter's mother-in-law. Um, there's always more that could be said. Uh, time is running short, so I want to move on to, to verse 16, Matthew chapter 8. Verse 16, we see that many people were brought to Jesus and that he did many more healings. He must have been worn out by the time that this day was over because although he was God, he was fully human and he got tired. So he had been preaching all day and now he's healing people all night. Um, But there's, actually it's verse 17 I really want to focus on as we close. And that is this, that that all this happened, Jesus, Matthew is saying that all this happened to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet Isaiah and that he took our illnesses and bore our diseases. Now, if you know Isaiah 53, which is a very common passage for us to remember and talk about, especially on Good Friday, um, Isaiah 53, verse which one is it for? It's always harder to find something when you're in front of a group of people. Yeah. Oh, I'm in Psalm. Sorry. Talk amongst yourselves. All right. So Isaiah 53, verse 4, I knew that didn't look right, says, Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. And so we notice maybe that Matthew seems to be using different language than Isaiah. And so why is that? It seems like Matthew maybe doesn't quite remember the book of Isaiah quite right. Because Matthew says that he took our illnesses and bore our diseases, whereas Isaiah says that he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. And I think what Matthew is trying to drive home with this point is that that Jesus Christ, the Son of God, is the fulfillment of the Old Testament prophecies. You see, um, he's the Messiah, he's the Deliverer, he's the Redeemer, and he's connecting these healing works of Jesus here in Matthew chapter 8 to the work that Jesus did on Calvary. He's He's saying Jesus heals diseases But he heals the ultimate disease by carrying our griefs and sorrows on the cross, on Calvary. And and so so Jesus is connecting himself to that, um, or Matthew is connecting Jesus to that. And so we remember that sickness and suffering are without a doubt the result of sin. So when Jesus healed somebody, he was removing the suffering um, by the suffering that he would endure on the cross for our sins. And this, this really uh, struck me a little bit. Um, it reminded me of John chapter 11, which 
is a passage that, that really in one of my darkest moments changed my life forever. And I'm not using hyperbole. That's true. It, it was life-changing for me. So if you want to turn to Matthew, or John chapter 11 with me, it talks about the story of Lazarus. And so it's a pretty familiar story that many of you probably know. Um, Lazarus is a, was a friend of Jesus, somebody that we know because of what is said that Jesus loved Lazarus. And, and Lazarus had sisters named Mary and Martha. Jesus loved them also. So um, Lazarus was sick, apparently really sick, to the point where Mary and Martha call out to Jesus. They send him notice somehow that Lazarus is sick and they want him to come and heal him. And so they have that faith, like, Jesus, we know you can do this. We've seen you do it so many times. Come and heal our brother, Lazarus, whom you love. But Jesus does something interesting. He's, he waits. He doesn't come right away. He waits two days. And we learn later, uh, or in, in uh, John 11, that, that Lazarus ended up dying of the sickness that he had. And so... Um, Jesus ended up coming two days later, and he, I think he arrived when Lazarus has been dead four days. And so it's important to remember, I suppose, that, that Jesus waited two days. By the time he got there, Lazarus was dead four days. So even if he left right away, Lazarus would have still been dead by the time he got there. Um, but that's not the point. Um, we see that, um, that when, when Jesus arrives, there was great sadness amongst Lazarus's family and, and his friends, and everybody's weeping. And I wanted to pick this up in verse uh, 32 of John chapter 11. Now, before we read this, though, just imagine being Mary and having your brother die, or, or maybe being in the middle of perhaps the, the most painful, heart-wrenching experience that you can think of just, just go back and think of the hardest thing you've ever dealt with and imagine you're right there in that moment of great sadness and pain. And we'll see what happens in verse 32. It says, Now Mary came to where Jesus was and saw him. And remember, she had been weeping for days. She saw him and she fell at his feet saying to him, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. And when Jesus saw her weeping, and the Jews who had come with her also weeping, he was deeply moved in his spirit and greatly troubled. And he said, Where have you laid them? And they said to him, Lord, come and see. And here's the thing that really grabbed onto me. Jesus wept. Jesus understands our pain. He understands our sorrow. He doesn't just understand it, but he enters into it. And we see that in this account that I don't think Jesus was sad because he missed Lazarus. Because for Lazarus to have died would be a, a good thing with an eternal perspective in mind. Because we know that Lazarus loved Jesus. Jesus wept because of the, the effect of sin on the world, the suffering and sorrow that he saw in that moment. And he knew that that was what he had come to do, to deal with the effects of sin in the world, take it upon himself, 
and die on the cross. And so, so when we're reading about this in Matthew 8, and it says that, that he, he bore our illnesses and, and took our um, diseases, that, that we have to remember that, that Jesus um, loves us enough to care about those things. And so... Um, yeah, I think that there are those here today that are really suffering greatly. Um, some of us are suffering horribly. Some of us are suffering a little, but we're all dealing with something that's hard. And so let's remember that we live in a world full of pain and sickness, but that Jesus is the one who took that and dealt with it on the cross. And so we should give that to him and allow him to bear that burden and sometimes it's just as simple as allowing his body, that is the church, to bear that burden too. So don't try to live in isolation in your suffering. Reach out. Get help. Call on the people that are around you. Ask them to pray for you. We're not supposed to do this alone. Um, but we take comfort in knowing that Jesus bore that, that burden for us. Um, and so this, this morning... Um, that we know that, that we, can, we can come to him like the leper on our knees, humbly submitting to him. We can come to him like the centurion, um, having faith that he can move mountains if he will. But we come to him knowing that he is God and he is in control. And so that is what we're supposed to do this morning. Um, I'm going to pray. If, if there's anybody here that, that really, um, I don't know, wants to to be prayed for, um, come up front after the service and I'll, I'll pray with you and um, I'll be here for a little while after the service so don't hesitate to do that um, but know that, that as we come up and take communion that, that we're and, and singing songs that we're responding to this message of the gospel responding to the truth that, that Jesus Christ the sinless Savior came to the earth just as the Old Testament prophecies predicted and he took on the cross our suffering and our shame, the, the consequences of our sin that we deserve to experience, and he bore it completely. And so we might suffer for a little while here on earth, but know that that suffering is preparing for you an eternal weight of glory that is beyond all understanding. And so we take heart knowing that we look beyond what is here and now and look to the eternal and that is where our hope is, that we will soon be living without sickness, without death, without tears, without sadness, so that we will be made whole and perfect like we were created to be. And so that is our hope.